Hi folks, this is Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas, today with episode 612 of the Survival Podcast. It is February 25th, 2011, and uh, we got a great show lined up for you today. Uh, you know, I always say it's one man's opinion or one man's view, and I'll tell you what, today it's actually going to be two guys' view. Uh, Paul Wheaton, one of the most popular guests we've ever had, a uh, permaculture guru extraordinaire, I call him, even though he doesn't want to be called that, is uh, returning to uh, talk to us this time about some cleanup from the last interview, some questions that have come in, things that people had thought and wanted to know more about, and then we're going to do the main show today on Wafani Structures which I guess we would call an earth-sheltered home, uh, not an underground home, and you'll hear why we don't call it that here in a bit, but that was the subject you most wanted Paul to come back and discuss, and Paul has agreed to come back to several more interviews and, and discuss quite a few other subjects. Uh, before I bring Paul on, though, let's go ahead and knock out our housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by supporting the show and making sure that we're here for you five days a week, Monday through Friday, just about every week out of the year. Occasionally I do have to take some time off. Uh, usually it's more work-related or uh, lifestyle-related than vacation-related, but uh, you know we're here almost every day, Monday through Friday. We've done 612 episodes without the support of the members and without the support of the sponsors, that wouldn't happen. So when you do need something, try to do business with our sponsors. And remember, my sponsors are personal endorsements. If I wouldn't buy from them myself, if I wouldn't recommend them to a friend or to a family member, I wouldn't recommend them to you. They go through a pretty stringent review process. Well, I'll tell you one company that certainly had no problem with that stringent review process was Sawtooth Tactical because Jeff over there has been taking care of his customers for a long time. You know, Sawtooth provides all the things that you want to live that tactical lifestyle. Everything from Magpaw magazines to Maxpedition bags and everything else you can think of. Great stuff, wonderful website, absolutely first-class service, and if you want something that's tactical or tactical, check out Sawtooth Tactical. Remember, the best way to find them is go to thesurvivalpodcast.com, click on their banner in the uh, right margin where all of our sponsors' banners are, and that way you know you're dealing with the actual Survival Podcast uh, sponsor. Next up today, I talk a lot about precious metals. I tell you to make sure that silver and gold are part of your investing portfolio. I tell you to make sure that you have some on hand in case the dollar collapses or in case we just have massive runaway inflation to see that silver and gold as an insurance policy. There's one other type of metal that I consider an equally valid precious metal, and that is copper-jacketed lead. Uh, there are many things that having a good supply of ammo insure against as well. In a total collapse, it might be better currency for a time than silver or gold. And when it comes to making sure that you can protect your family, a gun without, without ammunition is nothing but a very expensive club. So make sure that you're well stocked up. And if you don't stock up, you can't train with that weapon either. The best place I know to stock up and train with your ammunition is bulkammo.com. 
BulkAmmo.com. Check out bulk, BulkAmmo.com. Again, you can find their banner at the Survival Podcast website. But they have all of the common calibers and a few of the unique ones at the best pricing and absolutely lightning-fast shipping. Check out BulkAmmo.com. I also want to remind you guys, do connect with us on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter. I, I communicate quite a bit with the audience that way. Sometimes little bonuses and extra little things that don't make it on the air. I can only get so much on a 60-minute show. Uh, so if you connect with me, especially on Facebook and Twitter, you might get some little bonuses from time to time, and you get more personal interaction. Uh, last but not least, do consider joining the Member Support Brigade. You do that, you get exclusive content available only to members. You get a bunch of free ebooks, over $100 worth of value there. You get discounts to over 25 supporting vendors uh, with stuff you're probably buying anyway if you are a prepper or a modern survivalist or an urban homesteader or any of those good things like that. Discounts on everything from, from tactical products to uh, long-term food storage uh, to stuff for your garden, like gardening tools and seeds and things like that. So check out the Member Support Brigade. Remember, uh, you can also, from now and through Monday, I'm running an end-of-February special where you can get $20 off your first year. So instead of $50 for your first year, it's $30 for your first year. All you need to do is use the discount code POSITIVE. That's positive, like the power of positive thinking, because uh, we do try to stay positive around here in spite of the fact that we face down disasters and prepare for them on a daily basis. All right, folks, and as I said in the introduction segment, we are really fortunate to have uh, an encore appearance by one of the most popular guests we've ever had on the Survival Podcast, uh, Mr. Paul Wheaton, who is uh, permaculture guru and other things extraordinaire. Paul, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Oh, Mr. Spurko, thank you very much. Uh, I, I don't know if I'm guru or not, but uh, certainly uh, riddled with obnoxious opinions. <laughs> uh, well, I guess uh, that means that we're uh, kindred spirits because I've been called obnoxious on more than one occasion. But uh, we are glad to have you back, man. We were chatting before we, uh, we we got online here, and you were telling me you've had some great feedback from the Survival Podcast. You even had uh, one of our listeners say that he that he watched all of your videos on YouTube, and you got how many videos there? <laughs> I've got over eighty. So I was I was reading your website when people are responding to the to the podcast. And there was so much awesome feedback. It was just, boy, what a what an ego trip to read through that. You know, if you're having a, if I was ever having a sour day, I I just need to go to Survival Podcast and read that stuff. <laughs> what a and one guy said he he watched all of them, and I I was just thinking that, that had to have taken like four or five hours. Uh, it, well, you know, it's good content, though, Paul. I mean, I, I've, I don't know that I've watched them all, but I probably have watched at least half of them. I mean, I kind of picked through them, but you've got great content, and I think that's why people have been so receptive of you here. It's, it's been, uh, it's really put the wind in my sails to get this uh, fantastic feedback from, uh, from your folks. In fact, I gave a presentation here in Missoula a week ago. And uh, seven people stayed after, and one of the people said, uh, oh, well, I heard about you through the Survival Podcast. And then the other people that were standing there, all of them said, me too, me too. <laughs> so seven people here in Missoula had heard your show and came. That's that's uh that's a big turnout in Missoula too. Seven people. I'm kind of I'm kind of proud of that myself. Um, but we, we, we were also chatting, and there's been some stuff that you saw that you wanted to kind of address as follows. We've got you here to talk today about Wafati building, and uh, we're going to do that. But there was some like some cleanup from the last show we wanted to go through. Uh, one you said is you, you, uh, you had some comments for a person that was asking about 
creating habitat for predators in the garden and kind of a unique type of predator to attract, one that I'm very happy to have around, but maybe some people not so much. You want to tell us about that? Yeah, I was reading through the comments, and somebody said something that they had like a question about uh, creating garden habitat for critters that, that eat pests. And I thought, well, you know, I've got some footage on my computer uh, that I took, and I've been meaning to put together this video. And uh, you know what? I'm going to do it because I'm so happy with the support and feedback I've gotten from the Survival Podcast people. All. So I went out, and, and now I've got it online. I've got it up on YouTube, uh, this video. I, I took a video of Jacqueline Freeman, who's, who's the colony collapse disorder expert, and I got a video of her talking about colony collapse disorder. But uh, also, uh, there I've got some footage of um, uh, 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 Rick Valley, who uh, he teaches permaculture design courses down in Oregon. In fact, uh, he taught the uh, the actress Ellen Page came and took a permaculture design course from him. But I got so I got footage of both of them talking about building habitat for uh, for snakes. And, uh, and how that is a, is a way to control slugs, because over where they are, which is west of the Cascades, the, the biggest problem, the biggest garden pest they have is, is the slugs. And they've got huge slugs and little slugs and millions of slugs. And, uh, if you can't control the slugs, you don't get to have a garden. Um, and so, uh, um, uh, anyway, I put that video together and, and, um, Rick Valley, uh, talks about, uh, other things that the, that these, Habitats bring in that also help to control slugs and other pests. Uh, so I, anyway, it's a short video. I thought it turned out really good, and I just wanted to express that this is my way of saying thanks to the Survival Podcast uh, uh, listeners, who uh, were were just you know so positive and so supporting. And I'm just, boy, I seem to have really uh, hit a hit a sweet spot with your group there. I'm so excited. Let's do lots of these. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, we have about six topics, so we've got a whole series lined up for you to come back on. Um, on the uh, on the positive feedback there, you uh, were mentioning you had set up a Facebook fan page, and you got like a couple hundred people joined like right after you were on TSP. So I want to make sure that you know, there's about 20,000 of you guys out there, folks. So uh, if you haven't friended Paul on, pa- Paul on Facebook yet, please do so. I will... Uh, I'll put a link to his uh, fan page. But you had somebody set that up for you right after the show or right before the show? You Right before the show, you suggested to me, Jack, and, and I appreciate the advice you've given me. It's all been first class. Uh, I uh, A friend of mine said, oh, yeah, I'll take care of that. And so she set it up. And then next thing you know, it's got 250 people there. How fantastic is that? So I've been trying to, whenever I've got a new video or a new article or some new obnoxious thought, I, I try to put it out there, and the and the response has been has been quite good there. Yeah, very cool. I also wanted to real quick give you a chance to uh, to talk a little bit about lawn care. We had kind of back and forth with some email about that, and uh, I initially told you I didn't think lawn care was a big survival topic, but you have some different. Uh, Views on that. You've got a pretty good article out about it. Uh, it's probably one of the things we'll come back and talk about more in depth. But uh, you were telling me uh, things like trying to eliminate the toxicity in our environment that comes from the average lawn without necessarily eliminating every lawn out there. You know, I always tell people if you have grass, the best thing you can do with it is kill it and plant something productive. <laughs> but you know, I, I say that, and I've just I've just up in Arkansas, just sowed an area with perennial ryegrass and white clover and things like that. So you have some thoughts on that? 
So I'll, I'll try to be really brief because <clears throat> we're going to talk about Wafati's today. Uh, the, the big thing is, is what propels me to do any of this at all? And uh, it really started with this lawn care article. Uh, it was the very first thing I ever put on the Internet in 1995. And uh, up until just a few years ago, it was the number one thing on all search engines for whenever you look for lawn care. And then uh, people learned about SEO, and then I got bumped way back. Uh, and um, so that's been kind of a, a downer. But that's kind of where I got started was I, I believe that this article so far to date has uh, eliminated about two train loads of toxic gick from being used. Uh, and that's not train car loads. That's that's full trains, you know, so, um, you know, 150 cars or so. Uh, uh, and I, it's because the amount of traffic that it used to get was so massive. And, uh, so basically, um, when it comes to lawns, my philosophy is, uh, if you're going to have a lawn, which a lot of people are, if you're going to have a lawn, you know, it, it, the, the, the article goes into a lot of detail about how to cut your workload by a factor of four or five, cut your expenses by a factor of 10 to, um, uh, just make it easier, less work, less water, less everything. And, uh, and, and at the same time, um, you can grow things in your yard that are, uh, edibles as well as ornamentals. And, and really, I, I kind of feel like, um, while I, I really respect the idea of reducing the amount of lawn that you have to have more garden and that kind of thing, I think a lawn, uh, uh, is a great place for kids to play. Uh, it's a great place to bring community together. Uh, it's where you do your yard sales. It's where you have your picnics and, and all of that kind of stuff. I and mean, there's, there's, there are a lot of good purposes for having a lawn. And you can have a lot of ornamental and a lot of edible stuff, a lot of medicinal things growing in your lawn as well. Have a mowable metal, meadow. Um, so I'd like to ask uh, folks, you know, I, I kind of got this bee in my bonnet of like, wow, these people have been so great and so supportive. Um, I would just like to make a request, and that is please make a link to my lawn care article. Um, that's that's it. Anchor text lawn care and, and go to my article, which is at richsoil.com. I'll tell you what, folks, I will link to that article from the show notes. And if you will link to the article exactly the way you see me do, that's all you'll need to do. So all you guys out there with blogs on homesteading, urban homesteading, even though we're not supposed to use that term anymore. I, I don't know if you heard about that, <laughs> Paul, but we, I don't want to go off on that because we'll yeah. do the whole show. Um, but um, all of you guys out there with blogs like that on, on all the things that you're doing, maybe just mention this article and, and link in it the way – that I'll demonstrate on on my site to to Paul's site, and maybe we can bump him back up there because I think as many people as we can get informed about how to have an environmentally friendly lawn, the better off we'll all be. And I was giving you some heck there, Paul, but honestly, I, I understand. I have a lawn as well. It's just full of dandelions and chicory and and all kinds of stuff like that. I think it's a big part of what you're advocating. Um, I do want to get into the Wafati Wafati stuff because you get to choose how to pronounce it because you made it. Uh, But I do have like three real quick Google culture questions uh, that have come up, and I've had them come up, and I basically punted and said Paul's coming back on, and when he does, he can answer them. So the first one is I had a guy today on a call-in show. He wanted to know about building Google culture beds, and he said – all of the videos he's found online, people are building them up. They stack the logs and they put dirt on top of them. And he just doesn't want that high of a profile of a planting bed in his yard. So he's thinking more along the lines of go down a little bit and maybe have a bed that comes up about a foot. Any problems or concerns there? Well, first I want to express that it's good to want things. He should want a way. Uh, I want okay. to win the lottery, and I also want a lovely piece of pie. Um, now that we've covered what we want – Let's talk about why do we go up that high. And it's kind of like, well, 
when he harvests a strawberry, maybe he really likes getting down to the ground, bending over and getting that strawberry. And then when he's trying to fill a basket with strawberries, maybe he likes that up and down motion of going down to get each strawberry and putting it in the basket or or staying down there on his hands and knees next to the ground to get that strawberry. So Sepp Holzer has designed these to be um, about six feet tall. And part of what he's trying to say is, is like, now you don't have to bend over to get your strawberries. For a lot of the harvesting you do, it's now right up there where, where, where you can walk and, and pick and walk at the same time and, and get all of the food that you need uh, as you're harvesting while staying upright. Um, it's, it's a thought, and, and, and granted, yeah, um, some people don't like that. They want to have a look that's much lower. Um, now, Sepp Holzer also does it where he's actually making them six foot, feet tall, but he typically digs down a couple of feet. And one good reason to dig down is that when you build your hugel culture bed, uh, where are you going to get the dirt that goes on top? Now, if you've got deep soil, if you've got like two feet deep soil, then dig down two feet, and now, now you've got all the dirt. So you fill it up with wood, and you stack all your wood, and then you take the remaining dirt, and you cake it on on top, and and now you've got your dirt and your wood, and you're, you're all set to go. Um, here in the Missoula area, if you dig down, it's like everybody in the Missoula, you know, in the city, in the urban area of Missoula, it's like they typically have an inch of topsoil, sometimes even less, and underneath that are like a whole bunch of great big rocks and gravel and stuff like that. So it's kind of like digging down two feet, four feet. I mean, it would be crazy. And then what would you do with all those rocks and gravel that you dug down and experienced? So I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of, like, don't dig. Just pile up the, the logs and then throw a bunch of dirt on top of that. Uh, way easier. But, but, yeah, if you want to dig down, go for it. I, um, there, there will be places, like if you've got a heavy clay soil, then um, it might be a really bad idea to dig down unless you also dig down and, and set up some sort of uh, drainage um, Correct. Yeah. Otherwise, you're just going to be, you know, you're going to have this underwater mud puddle, and everything under there is going to die. It's going to, it's going to, it's going to suffocate. It's going to drown. Very cool. So, I mean, that was kind of my next question. Are there some areas where it's just too wet to do this? I guess if you build up, it solves that problem. Uh, but in some like low lying, uh, very wet areas, it's probably too wet. My my response to that was, you probably wouldn't need to worry about it if it was that wet. You'd have a wetland. You wouldn't need to no. to make it wetter. No, because uh, for a lot of people, um, you know, where it's wet, it's it's wet fall, winter, spring, and then they've got three months of dry where or it's concrete. It's uh, well, there, there's that, but the, you know, the thing is, is that it, it, they don't get any rain, and and really, I think that with the hugel culture, one of the things that we're gaining is the ability to hold that water through the entire summer. And and now you don't need to irrigate at all, and, and I think that's a really important thing. Um, but but now if you build down and and, and you're in uh, like a clay area, uh, it's 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 going to effectively drown, and um, and then you're like the, the dry season comes. I mean, it doesn't matter. You're not getting all the things when you do a raised bed of any kind. There's a there's a list of perks, and one of the perks is is that typically uh, if you get too much water. Then the water runs through the raised bed, and then it has just the right amount of water in the raised bed. 
because it doesn't, it's not drowning. It's not puddling and flooding. And then, um, and then when it's dry, if you've got water below, it sort of kind of a little bit wicks it up. So now it's like the, it's like these raised beds always have just the right level of moisture. Now for up north, like here in Montana, there's a couple of other perks. And that is that if you have a raised bed that's like two feet tall, like let's just go with a little raised bed. If it's just two feet tall, you gain two weeks on each end of the growing season. And so here in, in Missoula, we have a 90 day growing season. So now you've, you've just added like a month just by having a raised bed. And now you go to a, a six foot tall raised bed and you'll add even more. And on top of that, for the first year, that wood that's inside is composting a little bit, which is, which is giving off heat a little bit, which adds a little bit more to the season. Now, of course, adding this little bit to the season, um, doesn't do a damn thing when it works out to be that, um, you get a really hard frost or, um, if it's, if you've got a bed set up that's, that's kind of running, uh, east, west, and you're talking about the north side of the bed, which isn't getting sun. But, um, anyway, I, I'm sorry, Jack. I can, I can go on for about an no, hour on this. Kind of rope you there. So the answer is yes. Uh, there are places where you definitely don't want to go down and it could be too wet, but otherwise, if you go up, solves the problem. Um, last one, and then let's get into the Wafati stuff. Um, I had a listener also ask about types of wood. And I know you had said, like, pine and spruce prefer not, but definitely can. You even have a video where that was done. But his question was along the lines of, he had some gum trees. He was worried about whether or not he could use those. And I said, I don't see a problem. But he also said he had read to avoid black locust and black walnut. My thought on the locust was, you want this wood to rot. And I've seen 100-year-old fence posts made out of black locust. So that's probably why it's not good. Anything behind the walnut? Any problems with gum tree wood or anything else you want to avoid? I, I have to skip over the gum tree stuff because I don't know anything about gum trees. Um, but I, I can address black locust and black walnut. And um, uh, I just I just finished putting out a video recently about black locust. Uh, and and yeah, it it's uh, it's famous for not rotting, although. Um, the, the old black locust, once, I, I think it gets to a certain age and it stops doing its no rot trick and so then it will rot. Um, and, and basically the reason why black locust does, uh, you know, last so long is it's 4% fungicide by weight. Um, uh, just an amazingly high, and it's, and it's really a hard wood, so it's really tightly bound. So, um, so the great thing is, is that on the one hand it won't rot, and on the other hand it won't like release this fungicide into your soil. So, um, when you talk about culture or raised beds or that kind of thing, you are correct. Don't put it in the middle, but it's awesome as a border. In fact, on permies.com we have a thread that's like eight pages long where people have pictures of all their different culture beds. There's got to be like 30, 40 different pictures there, and and I've put up pictures of a, of a hugel culture that I did like five years ago where it does have black locust as a border because it's a city thing, and it had maple on the inside. Now, um, when it comes to uh, um, black walnut, then um, that one that one's kind of an odd thing. Black walnut's kind of the famous allelopathic tree where it exudes juglans from its roots and uh, uh, which is toxic to about two-thirds of the species, uh, plant species out there. So um, I would imagine that there's a fair bit of juglans 
in the wood, the bark, and, and that kind of thing, so that if you try to put that in the middle of a hookah culture bed, that you know some species will be okay with it, and some species will be very sad. That's my guess. I mean, you know, there, I don't have any great analysis on like how much it would suck or whether it sucks at all. Um, but I would, I would, I would choose to not put um, a black walnut or black locust in the middle of the bed. But uh, uh, I think some of the best wood to put in there is going to be um, cottonwood, poplar, alder. Those uh, and most of your uh, like maple. Uh, um, there's there's a uh, uh, birch. Birch would be good. There's a, there's gobs and gobs of woods that are really they they, they contain you know z- low to no uh, allelopathic agents or or any kind of icky things that would be a, of a concern. Any kind of conifer is going to be something where it's kind of like eh. Maybe the upsides would outweigh the downsides once it gets old enough. Although cedar, I wouldn't use. Cedar's yeah, cedar was the other one I read not to use. I mean, uh, on the on the pine and the in the, in the, the like the, uh, the the firs and things like that. Um, to me, one of the things is you're going to get some uh, some acid level uh, of response. But I don't know that could also be a good thing if you're growing uh, blueberries or cranberries. You know, uh, that's true, and, and I'm hoping that everybody who's savvy enough to want to do a hugel culture bed is also going to do polyculture, in which case, like, rather than trying to make it acidic, then let's, let's try and, and make it be, um, more like a pH of 6.0 to 6.5, which, which, you know, is, is really open to almost all species of, of what we typically plant in gardens. Um, as, as opposed to like, oh no, I'm going to be totally cool with being acidic. But I think, I think that with the conifers, um, once they start to rot, I think that they're, and, and plus I, I don't think the wood, uh, shapes the pH of the soil as much as the needles do, the needles and the bark. So, I'd agree with that. Um, and, and so, uh, and plus once it starts to rot, it's going to, you know, not have much of an impact at all with pH, I believe. Um, okay. And, uh, but I'd be far more concerned with the allelopathic agents. There's going to be certain things, like for example, tannins. There's certain sure. things in, in the wood that are like your all organic herbicide. Uh, the, you know, the, the conifer will attempt to, uh, poison the plants around it. So that way it has an advantage and it's not competing with those other plants. So, um, uh, those agents are in the wood. And, and so as it breaks down, then it releases some of that. And there's, now cedar is the worst of the lot. And that by far, which is why cedar lasts so long is because it contains lots of, you know, uh, uh, antifungal, anti, anti lots of things. But, um, uh, uh, and they're, they're also finding that there's, you know, there's great benefits to cedar in the water for fish, but that's another story for another day. Gotcha. Um, but yeah, uh, um, I've seen so many people build cedar planters. And I, I kind of like, oh, no, you got to be kidding. You didn't do that. Um, and, and uh, you know, it's like the, the, the growies just end up being sad. Uh, and, and, then, and then I've seen people do cedar mulch. And they say, things do great under cedar mulch. And it's like, you know, things, things might do okay with cedar mulch, but I'll bet you it does about the same as if you didn't put anything down. So the cedar mulch is going to come with all the benefits of having a mulch plus all the suckiness that comes with having herbicide you know so it's like it's like an it's, cedar is basically a mulch with an herbicide built in 
you know. So I mean, if you're if you're doing conventional landscaping and you want to kill everything except the uh, the three box shaped bushes in front of uh, the uh, strip mall, fine. But for our gardens, we probably want to avoid that stuff. I, let, let's move on though, Paul, because I mean, maybe one thing we could use cedar then for is the construction of something we don't want to rot, like. Oh, I don't know a timber that's part of a house. <laughs> so let's let, let's get into this uh, wafati and let's start out for those that didn't even hear the first interview with you. Maybe what is a wafati and and, and where, where did you come up with this idea? Um. Oh boy, that you know, and, and that question alone could take me a couple. Whoosh, of there's hours. a kitchen giant yeah. can of worms. All right, <laughs> so. Uh, um, uh, let's start off with okay. I'm gonna I'm gonna do a little history. I I uh, somebody was was uh, they had 80 acres and they said yeah, let's talk about having you come here and manage these 80 acres and we'll basically give you a 15 year lease and stuff like that. And so, but uh, you know, hey, you're gonna have to show up all of a sudden and get started and and it ended up not working out. But then part of what I was thinking is like, well, there's no place for me to live on that property, and so I would have to build something for myself to live in really fast. And um, I had a couple of rough ideas, and as we were like negotiating, you know, whether I was going to go there at all, I was trying to like simultaneously figure out how can I build something really fast to live in, for because uh, it was in Montana, uh, so I would need something to be able to get through the winter. And um, so I'm like, you know, pulling in all my resources, and all my books, and all of everything, and um, I, I was even getting so. Um, I, I kept coming across a reference to a book where the title totally turned me off. I, I really didn't like the title. It's like I'm never going to do a house based on what's uh, the, the wording in the title, and especially not the picture that's on the cover of the book. That's just awful. I'm not going to ever do that. No way. But I had so many books referring to it. I thought, well, maybe there's some building techniques in this book that are worth examining. And, um, and I should at least, you know, get the book from the library, give it a read, and I wrap my head around it because there's a lot of similarities. Cause I, cause I was very much thinking a pole structure. Pole structures are very fast to build. And they're sturdy, they can tolerate all kinds of, um, weather, um, and, and there's just so many perks to them. They're cheaper, faster, et cetera. So, um, plus they're, they're, they're really conducive to doing, uh, where you're working with woodland. So that was part of the deal was like, Hey, see all these trees? Do whatever you want with them. They're yours. You, you know, build whatever you want. You want to build a log cabin? Do that. That's fine. But log cabins are, I mean, that takes a lot of time to build a log cabin. <clears throat> so, uh, I, uh, um, wanted to do a pole structure. Well, this particular book, um, uh, did cover pole structures. And, and so I, I, uh, I, I went and I got the book and I read it and I loved it. And, and a big part of it is, is that it completely dispelled my concerns about this kind of structure. And on top of that, um, it supported a way of, of building that was not what was on the cover of the book. And, and so, um, the book I'm referring to that turned me off so much, uh, that I, I avoided reading it for 20 years is called the $50 and up underground house book. And, and, and so the word that, that I objected to was the word underground. I'm not going to live in an underground house. Uh, and, and even though the picture on the cover shows like, boy, that's, that's very underground. I'm, I'm not going to do that. Um, but then the, the first thing this guy gets into, the author Mike Ayler gets into is he starts, um, bashing 
uh, underground houses, all the other designs. And, and then, uh, uh, the feedback I've been able to, to find out is that 90% of all underground homes are abandoned. Um, you know, people, people, um, uh, build them and then they move in and then they have all kinds of water problems. It smells like a basement. Uh, and then they move out. You know, it's just like, this is not the way I want to live my life. And so then they go away. Um, uh, and then Ehlers designs eliminate these water problems. And, and it, it just faces it a different way. All right. So then that's, that's kind of where I got started. The, the key is that he was able to build himself a home in less than three months and he paid 50 bucks for it, obviously. And, um, uh, you know, and the materials he brought, like, and he could, he could bring it up in a car as opposed, not even a, not even a truck, a car, you know, and, and it's like, uh, when people start talking about eco homes and things like that, it's kind of like, uh, oh yeah, we had to bring in a couple semi truck loads of straw bales or a couple dump truck loads of, uh, sand and clay in order to make our cob house or, or whatever. And it's kind of like, yeah, you, you kind of lost all your eco, you know, coupons once you did that. Um, and, and, uh, plus the amount of time it takes to build most eco structures is typically much longer than it is to build a conventional home. So, um, uh, along with all my reading, I, I also tapped into the, the works of John Haight, who, uh, wrote a book called The Passive Annual Heat Storage. And, um, and, and, and in Haight's book, he refers to Ehler's work. Uh, um, and so basically, uh, he took a, a, a home and, and made something called, uh, uh, he refers to it as an umbrella, um, which for a lot of these kinds of designs, especially in Japan, they also refer to it as an umbrella, but it's an underground umbrella. The idea is to have a great big bunch of soil that you're going to try and, and keep dry. And, and as long as you do that, then you get to help control the temperature of this incredibly huge mass. And, uh, uh, so hate was able to, um, demonstrate. He built homes in, in Missoula of all places. Imagine that in Missoula where, uh, he didn't require any heat in the wintertime. So, um, the, the temperature of the house got down to be as low as like 69 after the third year or so. So, uh, and he had thermometers buried inside the mass and all over in the, in the, in the house. And he had all this, this massive system for being, being able to measure all the different temperatures and all these different little bits and bobs and places. So he, he was able to, to, to pull this off. So basically using the heat from the summer to heat your home through the winter. And as a trade-off, then the house stays nice and cool. In the summer, so it's like the best of all worlds. Only it's like, uh, wow, you 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 don't have to use uh, any wood to heat. You don't have to use any electricity to heat. No no natural gas to heat. You know, uh, no oil. N- nothing. 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 It's it's just thermal inertia. I mean, how brilliant is that? So the Wafati is basically merging. Yeah, let's get together. let's get into that because here's the thing, right? You have these two great designs and neither one of them was good enough for you. You had to do something new. <laughs> um, <laughs> it couldn't stand. This is a brilliant design. Let me change it. So you you brought these two together then is what you actually did. Um uh yeah, yeah. And and um I've I've been to um Mike Ayler's place. I visited with him on the phone a whole bunch of times and he invited me out to his place. 
So I, I drove out there and I took a bunch of video and the videos up on YouTube and I have visited with him at great length and I just have, you know, my life, as you and I have talked on the phone offline from your show a little bit, my life is constant experiment. It's, it's like I've got, at any given time, I've got like eight different little experiments going on, which I'm sure a lot of your listeners are the same way. Only I'm so arrogant that I feel like people will care, and so I put it up on web pages and whatnot. But um, but yeah, I took this idea, I took these ideas, and I merged them together. Um, I I spent a little bit of time talking with John Haight, but you know I I can't seem to get a good. I, he doesn't seem to reply to my emails much. I you know, but with with Ayler, I really struck a chord, and Mike Ayler and I have really exchanged a lot of information, and and I. I I've been out to his place several times now. I have a great time going out there, uh, and we talk on the phone regularly. And and so I evolved my idea forward. Now, the primary problem with, I believe, with, with Mike's work is that instead of calling it like an Ehler structure, he called it an underground house, which uh, he shared with me once, and he says that he, he, he flip-flops on whether he's for the story. He, he told me that he, re- he w- wishes that he had called it an earth-integrated structure as opposed to an underground house. Um, because when people hear underground house, they think of a particular design, which he calls the first thought house, and which I call the don't-do-this house. Yeah, as a, as a, a son of a coal miner who grew up in a coal mining family, I call it hell. <laughs> <laughs> I spent plenty of time under the ground as a teenager, and I don't want to live there. Yeah, I, you know, I it's it's like what I don't understand. I mean, it, on the one hand, it looks like oh, it's going to be all sunny because you're facing you have this big open windowy thing facing down the hill, and it's all one big. In fact, it looks a lot, a lot like an Earthship. And you and I talked about Earthships uh, the last time, and I think that there's a lot of amazingly awesome stuff about an Earthship. It's, it's a, it's, it's, it's the fact that it's south facing and, and the way it's kind of shaped and there's like all these attributes about an earthship that are really amazing. Until you have to fill one tire with dirt and a sledgehammer. Exactly. And then you think about doing that 30,000 times and it, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't, and then you wonder why this guy's like, yeah, we've been out here in the desert building this for 13 years now and we're almost done. <laughs> yeah. That. That. And, and so, uh, and, and the big appeal that I got from, from Ayler was, oh yeah, and I built this in like, you know, three months. And that included digging by hand, you know, because, and so this is where I came up with, I need a new word. I need a word that doesn't have underground in it because this isn't underground. In fact, part of the definition of a wafati is that it is specifically an above ground structure with a thick earthen roof. So I took all the ideas that I like from all of my different designs, and then I took a whole lot of ideas from from Ayler, and then I took you know um, Hate's general idea of the uh, umbrella. And there's another guy over in the Spokane area who's doing a lot of this, and he calls it annualized geosolar. But but he tends to do it more with a conventional shape of home. He does a lot with straw bale homes and does this annualized. Uh, uh, thermal inertia kind of a thing. So I, I call it annualized thermal inertia for my, for the Wafati. In fact, Wafati is an acronym and, um, and I choose to refer to it as an all lowercase acronym because, you know, when you make up a word, you get to do that if you want. And, uh, so, uh, the ATI in Wafati 
as annualized thermal inertia. Uh, and, and so that's a big part of it. The, the O in Wafati is, is, um, uh, Mike Ayler because frankly, the Wafati design is 80% Mike Ayler's work. Um, and W is, is, is Woodland. And finally, there's the F, which is for Freaky Cheap. So now, whereas Ayler has gone in and he's evolved his designs, and now he does a lot of home designs for a lot of different people, um, uh, he's, his, his designs have become more expensive. I actually chose a path where I felt like it got even cheaper. So he had a $50 home, which, of course, that was in 1971 that he built it for 50 bucks. So I don't know what would that be like, uh, like maybe two hundred bucks, hundred fifty bucks by today's standards. So somewhere in there. So I've I've tried to enhance that so that it would either be the same price or even cheaper. So like if he would do it again, but he did it as a Wafati, he would um, hopefully come in under fifty bucks in nineteen seventy one. So, um, uh, but you know I'm not sure we haven't, and and I need to I need to confess we haven't actually built one of these yet. Now I've had. Two people who were going to build build them in uh, in Montana last year, and and as far as I know, they never did. Um, uh, I went out to their sites, I looked at the site, I gave them a bunch of advice, and they're all like, well, "I'm going to do this and start in a week, and I'm going to you know blah 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 blah." And it's kind of like, "Okay, great, great, oh, I'm happy to help. I want to come take pictures." And then I never heard another thing from them. Although I think one of them they are going to do it, but they're going to do it this upcoming spring. Um, the other one, I think that they've moved on to something else. I don't know what. But um, but basically, the design is Ehlers structure, but then there's this additional layer of uh, polyethylene that um, that is going to help create a larger umbrella around the structure to get the annualized thermal inertia. Because the annualized thermal inertia is something that is not part of your standard Ehlers structure. So... Now I'm, I'm not sure if I've wandered off into the woods or if I'm... No, 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 you're there, you're good. And I kind of wanted to ask you about that because I read your article on this, and one of the things with the, the, the poly is that as you create this umbrella, that, that that total surface area needs to be twice the inside square footage of the home. So if you built a rather large one, say a 1,000-square-foot structure, you would need 2,000 square feet uh, under this poly umbrella. Is that Do I have that right? Um. You're close. You're warm. Okay. You're getting there. But, but, but rather than twice the size, that, that, well, yes. So, so yeah, okay, twice the size. Um, uh, and at the same time, it, it needs to be about 20 feet out. So, um, uh, you, so you do need to have this, this, but it's kind of like, it's, it's not like you're really building a bigger structure. It's just that you're, when you dig down and, and, you know, hey, like rather than going out there with a shovel and a wheelbarrow, here's an idea. Use a track hoe. <laughs> Run the track hoe for a day. <laughs> I absolutely agree. You know, I I was just listening to uh, this uh, DVD set that I got from uh, the Permaculture Institute in uh, Australia. And the beginning part I'm just listening to now, uh, Bill Molson was talking about how some of the places he's gone to consult with people, he's like, well, bring in some equipment. And they're like, uh, permaculturists don't use that. And he's like, well, uh, I do. <laughs> I made up the word and I do. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, and, 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 and Sepp Holzer, of course, does. And, and, uh, and, and really it's kind Jeff of, Lawton does. I mean, all these yeah. guys do. I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's because you're using it once. It's not like you're going to go out there every day and drive in circles on a track hole and burn up as much diesel as you can. You're using it to shortcut, 
uh, a workload that's going to put a structure in place that's going to exist for decades, uh, and you're using it for a day or three. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, if you've got a workforce, if you've got a 100 people with shovels, and you're paying them a dollar a day, oh, hey, sure, that'll work out fine. That'll be just fine. But it's, it's send them over to my place when you're done with them. Yeah, I have lots of stuff for them to well, do. I, I, I know that like people go into Africa or into South America, and it's like um, rather than bringing in a traco, it just makes more sense to have here's I mean here's 150 people and they each have a shovel, and um, uh, you were about to go out and pay. Um, you know, uh, uh, several thousand dollars to have bring in a track hoe, but it's like, you know what? Um, why not give it the money to these guys? They, you know, two dollars. They're like really tickled pink to have two dollars, and and they like to dig. That's why they have shovels. Um, th- that maybe that's it. I, I don't know, but but it's kind of like you know. Uh, but for the most part, yeah, uh, bring in bring in a track hoe. I mean, it would be awesome if we get to the day, get to an age where. Um, you go to rent your traco and it's an all electric traco. That would be fantastic. Um, but, but currently they run on diesel. So you make the best of it. The, the, the flip side is, is that like, uh, if you're going to go and reshape the land and put in a bunch of hugel culture beds and wafati and whatever else, a couple of ponds and whatnot, it's a one time thing, you know, and, and, the, and, and rather than trying to compare like, um, nature being left alone to this and say, oh, now you've brought in a traco. Let's try to compare it to standard conventional ag or building a conventional home. And it's like now instead of bringing in a traco for a day, you're you're bringing in a tractor and you're going to bring a tractor in a dozen times every year for the next hundred years, as opposed to like okay, we're going to bring in a traco for for one day of the year, shape everything, and then it goes away. And for the next fifty to a hundred years, we don't have to mess with it again. I mean, I think, you know, we've, we've, it, it, granted, it would be awesome if we had an electric powered track hoe or if we had another way of doing it that was as convenient. But, um, hey, this is, for, by my standards, this is good enough. And on top of that, there's this guy, Albert Postema in, um, in, in the Seattle area. Um, and, and he's got like this business of track hoes, uh, and, and he runs them all on biodiesel. He's been doing it for like 10 years. It's, it's like, uh, you know, I, I even, I wouldn't be surprised if he's even got some that run on just oil. Um, you know, like, like vegetable oil, uh, waste vegetable oil. But, um, and I think he even makes the biodiesel himself. So, uh, he's got a full size business. And I know that, you know, hell, now if you're, if you're concerned about like, uh, eco stuff and, and, and burning, uh, 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 petroleum products, well, hey, this guy's, uh, he's, 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 he's mastered it and you could do it. So, I've wandered off. I've wandered off topic again, haven't I? We've wandered off again. That's okay. Let's. Uh, but I, on a str- I mean, one of the things I always, you know, I call underground hell uh, because to me, hell's not a place with lots of fire. It's a very dark place, and you go underground. Like you said, you have this great south-facing window and on these underground houses, and that's great while the the sun is in the right place, and it's fine until you have another room that that's actually closed off. But your your Wafati structure has a lot more light in it. How do you pull that off? Well, it's pulled off in a way that's very similar to the way a lot of these underground houses are built, and that is that it's like almost solid glass on the downhill side, which you know is a lot like an earth ship. And so, um, you know, Ehlers' work just basically took that design and and turned it, gave it a 180 so that all the glass is pointed uphill. 
and 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 what that does is it makes it so that any water landing on the roof goes downhill as opposed to the original design um uh where it hits the roof and then it goes to the back of the house which is into the into the hillside where it creates a lake so that way your underground home suddenly needs to be built like a boat um and and then washed downhill uh <coughs> So, uh, uh, you know, it's hard for me to get you to laugh, and that was like one of the only times. <laughs> you're like, uh, you're like, but yeah, you're well, I'm just thinking like, about wet basements and everything. And the other reason that a coal miner considers underground hell because it's always wet. Yeah. You know, it's wet and dank, and, and you've kind of avoided that. Right, right. So we fix that. In the meantime, it's like, okay, now this view of the uphill is really lame. Um, I mean, it brings in a lot of light. I mean, you got so much glass up there, you get a lot of light. So now what we do is we put a gable roof to the downhill side, and now you've got all that awesome view and light going to the downhill side, um, and uh, and we've got all kinds of light coming from the other side. So rather than having light from one direction, now we've got light from two directions. And and in Ehler's work works uh he he's got it set up so that you can get light from all four directions because how you're able to get this to be so freaky cheap has to do with the roof design and um uh, uh and this is a concept that a lot of people have a hard time grasping the idea is is that when any drop of water lands on the roof you it, it cannot find a roof edge it's going to find its way all the way down and to the ground outside um, without ever encountering a roof edge. And and so then, you know, this is where we need the uh, – people need to actually go out to my website and look at the Wafati article to be able to, to see the drawings that I've made so that they can understand what I'm talking about. Um, but uh, – and, and then the next thing is – But in short, there ain't no rain gutters on a Wafati. There's none. I mean, why would <laughs> – yeah, exactly. You would have no need for a rain gutter anywhere. Because every bit it goes downhill to the ground, so this is this is an above ground pole structure with a thick earthen roof, and we can pull this off, making it so cheap as long as you don't try to do edge as long as you don't try to to make it so that the water will run down and hit a man made thing which will then attempt to mess with the water and take it somewhere. You know, because once you start to do that, now it's like, okay, now you gotta have a conventional roof or a conventional earthen roof. And that's another thing is that when it comes to earthen roofs, typically you're gonna have a conventional home and with a, you know, you, you, you're gonna opt out of the conventional roof and you're gonna put in an earthen roof. And the earthen roof is going to cost roughly, approximately, averagely, ten times more. I mean, they've got layers and layers of weird things in order to be able to make it so that the whole earthen roof thing will work out. And there's lots of good reasons for it. And it's like if you try and cheat on that, you will be sad. There, there's very, very, very sad. It, it all goes wrong. It all. You, yeah. You've got to pay the full ten times more than a conventional roof in order to have a proper earthen roof. And then, and now you've paid ten times more. You've got ten times more stuff up there. Ten times more material and manufactured stuff up there. And then people are like, "Hey, look, I got a green roof. Therefore, I'm green." And I'm, I'm I want to stand up and say, "I don't think so." Um, yeah. 
Uh, so let's let's talk a little bit about the layers of what you actually because I think a lot of people are hearing okay I've got the kind of this wood structure inside I've got these 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 this roof and I've got these windows and then there's just dirt on top of it but it's not just dirt there's a let's call it a sandwich formula or a lasagna that you've created that goes up there so how does that work that is so good I I need to put that in the article lasagna okay it's lasagna because, trademark Jack Spearco well see there's a thing called, <laughs> there's a yeah, thing called lasagna gardening. And and I'm and I'm not a big fan of lasagna gardening. And the reason is, is that in lasagna gardening, people use layers of newspapers and cardboard and stuff like that. And it's and it's like you know oh and they say it'll decompose. And in fact, um, Mollison uses it, and and Holzer uses it. And of all the permaculture people, about seventy percent of the permaculture people will use newspaper and cardboard, and they're totally cool with it. And I'm not one of those people. I am not cool with the idea of using newspaper and cardboard. In your gardening efforts, and, and why is that? Before we go on to how you lasagna a roof, that is an awesome question. And and you know what? Most people, most people, when I bring this up, like I'm not okay with it. They say, "Oh yeah, but the soy, the, the inks are made out of soy. It's biodegradable." And it's like you know what? The inks aren't really what bothers me. I mean, they bother me a little bit. And you know what? That ink, that ink, that's made out of that soy, that's not edible. You wouldn't eat it. If you ate it, you'd get sick. <laughs> And so, you know, so, so like, you know, you're wrong about the ink. You're wrong. Now, okay. now let's move on to the next thing. Let's talk about what is paper made out of? Now, there's a, there's a lot of different ways that, pe- that paper is made these days. Now, let's talk. So, so basically, cardboard is nothing but layers and layers of, of a paper-like material that's much like newspaper. And then they've got a, um, a, a, a thick layer of it where it's like got, um, a, a lot of, uh, newspaper kind of, kind of sort of glued together. And then they've uh, got uh, a corrugated bunch where they've kind of put a little a little wavy shape into the paper and glued it in there to hold it in shape. So they have corrugated cardboard. Um, and then uh, so now let's talk about the paper itself. Let's leave the glue out that comes with that cardboard package from it. Let's just talk about paper, newspaper paper. There's two ways to make it. One way is mechanical, and then the other way is chemical. Guess which one I'm against. Yeah, I'm thinking chemical. Duh! <laughs> so basically, if you take paper, uh, you take wood, wood chips, and you mash it all up, there's all this lignin stuff, and it kind of turns into this gluey, soupy stuff, and that's what paper is made out of. But it's like if you do it through a mechanical process, it's kind of, you know, long and expensive. But if you add a bunch of chemicals in it, it kind of gets you to that, that goopy, lignin state a little faster. And so they tend to use the chemicals. Um, and then, of course, there's like, you know, uh, uh, other papers where it's kind of like uh, that they use in some magazines. Like, oh, our magazine is so good and so important that we need it to have a shelf life of 500 years. And so we're, we're putting really crazy chemicals into the paper, which is why they say don't use uh, magazines. Uh, they say just use newspaper. But um, that's why when you open up some magazines um, that are like a fancy pants magazine, they have like this weird chemical-y smell on the pages. Like you open up a page. You know, I'm not talking about like you open up some kind of uh, uh, Cosmo and it's like it's perfumes or something. It's like, no, there's like you open up uh, some sort of science magazine. And it's like, well, these are important scientific journals and they need to last 500 years. So we use crazy chemicals in the paper so it'll last 500 years. And gotcha. you open it up and, wow, what is that weird smell? Oh, and you're like holding it away. It smells kind of like formaldehyde is what it really smells like. Which may not be far off of what's in there. Maybe I, you know, I don't know, but I do know. Don't use that in your compost. But they say use newspaper. All right, so we're we're back to newspaper. Um, uh, if we knew for a fact 
that the uh, that the the paper uh, came from. Uh, it was it was a, a mechanical process and not a chemical process. Well, I'm less concerned, uh, and so that's. But it's like I'm still concerned, but I'll get to that later. But but most of them, nearly all of them, it's a chemical process. All right, so now that's phase one of just newspaper. Now let's make some cardboard. It's it's all the all the loveliness that comes with the newspaper, and we're going to add glue. Now, the first thing is is that the glue that's used is ninety percent cornstarch, which which um is is going to become is going to come from corn, uh, probably a GMO corn, and I'm not too terribly concerned about you know that, that's not so bad. I mean, I some people will like they ask me about I'm going to build a compost pile. I got a friend who's who's got all this stuff, and I'm thinking I want to bring it in and compost it and use it on my gardens. And then I say, you can do it. It will work. I wouldn't do it because I don't even want GMO junk in my compost pile. But you go ahead. Um, so so the glues, even if, even that part that's just cornstarch, it's still going to be GMO cornstarch, and I don't want it. Um, and maybe some of your listeners are cool with that, and and I don't really want to get into it. I've, I kind of like the idea how on Permies – we kind of are of this state of like, we don't talk about GMOs. We're all beyond that. That's, we're, you know, and so I, I set that as like, I don't want anybody on my site who doesn't think that GMOs are icky. I want to have conversations with people where it's like, GMOs are so five years ago. Everything we're doing and everything we're talking about is like way beyond that. Got you. All right. But now let's talk about the other 8%. Because it wasn't just, you know, cornstarch that's holding these car- this cardboard together. They've got, other chemicals that they've introduced in there. And, um, you know, uh, the, and then we can talk about which chemicals they are, but of course it's like the chemical du jour. Um, and, and they're, they're changing it up. And so it's, it's hard to keep track of. And frankly, I don't want it in my, I don't want it in my horticultural stuff. I don't got gotcha. you. So there's, let, let's reel you back in to talking about roofs now. Uh, all right. Let's, but, cause, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I get what you're saying there. And I think you've got a really valid point, honestly. Okay. Let's take what you just said. And, and work it under the Wafati. And that's going to okay. make, that's going to bring up my last point about what I don't like about newspapers okay. in, in horticulture. But it turns out to be awesome for a Wafati. And, and you using that word lasagna made it so that it's like, oh, right. That's, that's such an excellent point. You know, but, but basically the thing is, is, is so for example, uh, um, it was about two years ago, a, a woman asked me over to look at her garden and give her some advice, and she had an apple tree that was really, really sad. And, and so um, I, I said, uh, boy, you know, it looks like the leaf count is low. The, you know, it, it, just, it does look sad. Everything else around here looks awesome. And, and so it's like, well, let's dig into the soil. Let's take a look. And let's find out what's going on because it looks like the roots aren't getting enough um, um, good, good, goodness. It looks like root sadness to me because it looks systemic. It looks like the whole thing just looks sad. So let's get a shovel, and I put the shovel in, and it was like I couldn't get the shovel to go in. And, and then we're like, you know, then we're monkeying with it. We're just, well, we found newspaper there. It was about a third of an inch thick, and you could still read the stuff on the newspaper. And, it, you know, you could make out the, the art. You could read the article on the newspaper. And she said, oh, yeah, about five years ago, I had all these weeds around my apple tree. And so I put all this newspaper down, and sure enough, it killed all the weeds. So I thought it was awesome, and I left it. And I put a bunch of uh, soily goodness on top of it, and um, I thought it was going to break down and compost. 
and it didn't. And then, uh, as, uh, granted, there's going to be a, a lot of people that are going to have awesome luck with this where it will break down. But I will bet you that for every case where it does break down, there's two where it doesn't. And and so this woman had put compost on it, and she had compost below it. And so you would think that there's all this compost, and of course it's commercial compost, which I'm also against. But it, you'd think that it's going to continue to break down, and it's going to bring all your little microbial buddies up there to eat the newspaper. You would think, yes. But they didn't. But it didn't. And, and I have to admit, now that you say that, I've been places where I've dug up newspaper, especially when it's over about a, a, an eighth to a quarter inch of it matted together, yeah. where it's been in there a long time, and the edges are even rotted. But, but it almost seems like the further you get to the center, the the more compacted and literally hard. You know, it almost like it, like it petrifies or something. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but I know what you're talking about. It is kind of a concern uh, when you're thinking about trying to grow underneath that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, and, and then here's the next thing. Underneath, now, this is in the Seattle area. In fact, this was on the east side of Seattle. It's in Woodenville, where uh, they get twice as much rain as they get in Seattle. So, okay, so this is not like it's out in in the the, the dry country in in Tucson or something like right, that. We're talking we're in a about, moist environment and we're in fertile soil of some sort, and it still doesn't rot. We're talking about the land of sogginess. All right. Wow. So we're in the land. I would have believed it if it came from anybody but you. I would have to doubt it. <laughs> Honestly, got it. And you know what? You probably would too if you'd never seen it. Right. Right. So. So here's the kicker. Here's the thing. Here's This is where it ties into the Wafati. And that is, I dig up this newspaper in the land of sogginess, and it, and I can still make out the words on the newspaper, and underneath, dry as a bone. So this is where all the roots of this apple tree are. Dry, dry, stone dry. I couldn't find any moisture. I, we dug a couple of different places. It was stone dry. So the dry. tree was basically suffering from a drought in the middle of a wet environment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's a good way of putting it. Now, of course, the, the the tree's roots actually extend like one and a half to two times further than the height of the tree. So, like, um, uh, usually uh, a couple of times past the drip line. You know what I mean by the drip line? You know what I'm saying when I say the drip line? Absolutely. Okay. You look at the crown of the tree and where it drips, yeah. and you go out past the tree. So. I, and a lot of so it's getting water, but it's also all of the root mass in that dry area that would normally would also be getting water isn't. So it's right. it's not a drought, but it's far underwatered. And, you know, I see this lady with her hose, you know, <laughs> if it's the past the rain, and she's all water, and it's just going off. And <laughs> Exactly. Wow. Exactly. So, so the tree stayed alive because it had some roots that were further out than the newspapers, and and that was able to get you know water and air because because a tree needs air too. Um, but I think that you know the the rest of the roots that are under the drip line, which is where all the newspapers were, that those roots were getting no water, no air, and and so this this tree was was suffering. Um, but now you take that same thing. This, that same mysterious thing that happened there for that woman in Soggyville, and now let's make a roof for a house out of it. And so now you asked me about the roof design and what are the layers. So, of course, you've got your structural layer of wood, and on top of that, you got newspaper. Because before, Mike Ayler, he used tar paper. But I'm, I'm going to save a little bit, and I'm going to use newspaper. Although, actually, you know what? I might have to change my idea in a few more years when they stop printing newspapers. <laughs> 
But uh, and then I would put. You know, you're right about that. I mean, they're they're on they're on the way out. I mean, get your newspaper, hey folks, uh, prepper preppers out there, stock up on your newspaper and your incandescent bulbs now. Both of them are going the way of the dodo bird. So. Uh... Yeah, you want to build your Wafati sometime in the future. You better start gathering up those newspapers. Um, and so anyway, uh, uh, so there's a, there's the wooden structure, which is going to have to be pretty stout because we're going to have a total of three feet of soil on top of this structure. And so you, you've got your wooden structure, a layer of newspaper, your layer of polyethylene, which is what Ehler does. And then another layer of newspapers. So the two layers, so the, the polyethylene is sandwiched between newspapers. And, and part of this is I think the newspaper is going to do what it did for that woman and her apple tree. And it's also going to protect the polyethylene because now Ehlers designs have now moved up from using polyethylene to using EPDM, which is a pond liner, which is pretty expensive stuff. So it's very expensive so, as someone looking to build some ponds where the, the, the soil won't hold water. Yeah, it's really expensive. So when I first presented this to Mike Ayler, uh, uh, he said, no, it'll never work. It's a stupid idea and, and all that stuff. And then he called me back the next morning and he says, you know, I slept on it. And actually, I think it's a really great idea. I, I, you know, in fact, the more I think about it, the more I think that, that it's, it's even better than pond liner. And, and so, yay. Um, innovation. Uh, so, all right. So, so back to the layers. We've got the wooden structure, newspaper, poly, newspaper. And then we have about eight inches of soil, just dry, gravelly dirt. We have four inches of wood duff, sticks, uh, wood chips, uh, uh, pine needles, um, um, whatever you want, whatever's lying around. Um, and, and then we're going to do the newspaper, poly newspaper again. And then we're going to do, um, uh, 24 to 28 inches of soil. So that's it. That's the roof. And, and I, that's I, where you're getting a lot of that thermal mass out of. I mean, that's, uh, well, I think you're only getting a little bit of thermal mass, but see, the, the thing is, is that wet soil, cause when you look at straw bale, Straw bale has an R value of, I believe, about uh, two per inch, R2 per inch. And so it turns out straw is not really all that insulative. But, you know, if you have your walls 18 inches thick, well, then, yeah, now you've got a pretty good insulation. You've got like, you know, and, and so that's where a lot of people are going with that. Um, and so now it turns out, so that's R2, and then uh, wet soil has an R value of, I believe, 0.05, and dry soil has an R value that's six times higher. So that now we're up to 0.3. Now, straw is uh, two, which is the same as wood duff. So wood duff is, is about two. In fact, um, actually, wood duff is going to be a lot higher but it's gonna it's gonna end up getting compressed, and once it's compressed into something that's like a big chunk of wood up there, then it's it's gonna be more like R two. So, <clears throat> but the thing is, is that with with that dry soil, which which is 0.03, and our value of 0.03 per inch, and we've got like, you know, um, eight inches of it, four to eight inches of it there, then um, uh, the, the the thickness of it gives us something. But on top of that, we've got the thermal mass, so we've got two thermal properties working for us here. We've got a little bit of insulation property working and a little bit of thermal inertia property working for us. 
Now we take that umbrella and we extend it out beyond, like 20 feet beyond the walls of the structure. And, and now we have something that's like, you know, 20 feet of insulation and thermal mass. And that's where the, the annualized thermal inertia comes from. So that, that makes perfect sense. And that's why you have the, the spec basically doubling the square feet of the, the home into the entire mass. Right, right. Now, when we compare it, I mean, the, the big ones, when people think like, okay, I'm going to build something interesting, I'm going to build something that's eco, I'm going to build something that's like more in tune with nature, I think almost everybody turns to either straw or cob. And basically, with those two structures, um, you, ba- you, you, you take a conventional floor and a conventional roof, and you just replace the exterior walls. And, and, and so to me, it's like, uh, it's interesting. I mean, with, with, with cob, oh, if, if you're going to build, um, in a, in a wheat field and you own a baler, then, and then you harvest the wheat and then you got all the straw left over and then you go out there and you, you cut that wheat and you bale it up and now you build a straw bale home. Okay. That's eco. I'm with you there. But, but, um, uh, people are building these straw bale homes and they're trucking the straw bales a thousand miles. And, and to me, it's kind of like, well, you kind of lost there. And then straw bale homes take, um, a lot longer to build. And so if you pay for the labor, they end up being more expensive than conventional homes. Um, I've heard a lot of construction people refer to straw bale homes as like, you kind of, like they've, they've built a bunch of conventional homes and then they build a straw bale home and they say, you know, it's kind of like you have to build the house twice. Um, but still conventional roof, conventional floor, conventional foundation. Uh, same thing with cob. Now, now, um, I have seen some amazingly stunning, beautiful homes done with Cobb. And the great thing with Cobb is you could build a home for like 5000 bucks. You could build a, a large, amazing, fantastic home for like $5,000. And and I'm going to recommend that people uh, check in. If you're interested in Cobb, you got to look at the works by Ianto Evans. Uh, he's got that book, The Hand-Sculpted House. That guy is a brilliant Absolutely artist. amazing. Absolutely. An artist with homes. I mean, it's it's... <laughs> You're living in a in a in an art structure with the way that guy does stuff. Yeah, uh, I'm going to see him next week. I'm going over to uh, his place, and I've been invited out there to take some video of some things. It's going to be uh, we're going to do a lot of with rocket mass heaters. It's going to be awesome. Um, but but with Cobb, he teaches these Cobb, and so there's these people that have learned from him how to build a Cobb home in a weekend. They know everything that they need to know to build a Cobb home, and then they can go someplace and they can build their own home with hardly any skills at all. And the total cost of the home is just peanuts, and uh, which is just awesome and amazing and wonderful and slow. It just it just takes a long time. You got to mix the cob just right, and then it's like you just build this little gob of a home every day. It goes on and on and on and on. And so if you were to so there's there's a a house uh, over in the Seattle area. Uh, they asked me to come take a look at it, and it's cob. And the woman with the house, she um, uh, had people build it for her, and uh, and then it had to meet all the building codes and stuff like that uh, um, because she wanted to, you know, be on the be on the straight and narrow, be on the good path. And um, the cost to have the home built, and this is a zero bedroom home. It has a loft in it, no bedrooms. Three hundred thousand dollars, and I mean, like it was small. It was a little wow. place. And it's just because it just takes so long to make the cob. 
And, uh, and of course you're paying laborers to, to do it. Now, um, on the other hand, I've met a lot of people that have built a Cobb home and, and they put a lot of time into it, but then the total cost was like under a thousand dollars. And I'm sure, and, and I've got a video up about Cobbville where there's like a whole bunch of Cobb homes, like about eight of them in my video. And, um, the most expensive one there looks like something that could be in an urban setting. Like, you know, your, your suburban neighborhood or something like that. And, uh, it's got, uh, at least one bedroom in it and a loft and it's beautiful, beautiful structure. And it's a two floor, two story structure. Total cost to build that thing was 10 grand. And I'm kind of, wow. it's, it's just a beautiful, it's a piece of art. Of course, the other thing goes back to the, what's your, what's your time worth? You can do it all yourself. And if you don't have anything else to do, fine. But if you're trying to make a living, then, you know, every hour that you're working on building this house could be spent on earning your income. Yeah. So, so time is an issue there. And if you have the time, great. But if you don't, like a lot of us, then your structure may be a heck of a lot quicker uh, to get done. Well, I think a lot of the stuff that you advocate, see, because now I've listened to a few of your shows. <laughs> I think a lot of the stuff that you advocate is, is a lot of the stuff of like, you know, get out of the rat race. You know? What- Absolutely. If you, I mean, I look at it this way. We prepare for the biggest disasters in the world. I mean, you know, the things that haven't ever happened that could happen. So if you can get to a point in your life where you have enough resiliency and redundancy and self-reliance that if the whole thing just craps the bed, you can survive, then why do you need the system now? And there's a fractional kind of relationship there. Not everybody, you know, could I go live 100% off-grid tomorrow? Yes. Do I want to? Not so much. So if I can live 60% off-grid, well, now I only need 40% of, of the conventional income. And that allows people to actually act like human beings, you know, and actually have a thing called a life. Well, so time's something I'm always very conscious of because if I love making a cob house, then it's a, a labor of love. Right. But if I don't like making a cob house, well, it's a lot like being in a cubicle. And if you said, Jack, what is the one place you don't want to go other than back into a coal mine? It would be back into a cubicle. I think if I went to a coal mine, I would be miserable and cussing under my breath. If I had to go back to a cubicle, I think I would take my 45 and blow my brain pan off uh, from the inside of my mouth. Honest to God. So, Jeez. Wow. <laughs> I, I really don't like cubicles, if you can tell. I've, I've been there myself. I've been there myself. I, I kind of think that if, if a person goes and gets Yonto's book, and and because you're talking about labor of love, oh oh, and I, and before I forget, I want to say, you know, I think the one thing that when you really understand, and if you could go out into the wilderness and live and survive, just the knowledge that you can do that, and that and that you know how, and that you have the stuff in your head, so at any given time you can just grab your bug out bag and go. And now, you are a hundred times freer than the guy that doesn't know. Because, because now you're living your life this way because you choose to, not because you have Absolutely. To. Absolutely. Life by choice is, is a big part of what we do here. It's, it's not that I want to completely, uh, never again use electricity, but to know that I'm choosing to use the electricity that I need for the things that I, I just want. I don't have to have it. I want to have it. So that lets me make a conscious decision. And then I'm not a slave to the other 80% that I've been able to just give up. Right. And it's for, so for me, I'm all about the eco stuff. I'm all about, you know, saving the planet and all. But, 
you know, I'm more interested in my solar array so that I have freedom than because it might make some polar bear somewhere happy. I, you know, uh, I know that polar bear would eat me and my children if he had a chance, and I begrudge him no ill will, but I'm more concerned about my family, and if we do things the right way, then there should be room for the polar bear as well, but he's a byproduct, he's not my focus. Well, true, and, and then of course in the world of permaculture, we're all about stacking our functions, and so if, Correct. if you can find a path that's like the most awesome path for you, and it saves the polar bears, hey, you got a twofer. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, you stacked your functions. Great, awesome. Way to go. So, um, Cobb, I want to yeah, talk to, about Cobb oh, just a little oh, bit more. Yeah, wrap it up. And, and, and that is that I think that if a lot of people go and they get Yonto's book, um, The Hand Sculpted House, and, and they read it, and if they were to look at my videos about some of Yonto's structures and, and stuff, I, I think a lot of people might totally forget about the idea of a wafati just because of the fact that it's like these, this is like living in a piece of art. And, and it, I mean, what, and I don't think anybody can really comprehend how enriching that is until you've seen one of these and you, you, you kind of, I I mean, I think, I think a lot of people will be willing to give up their 4,000 square foot home and live in one of these little cob houses just because you're living in this piece of art and it's like a whole different lifestyle and it would be a labor of love. And if it's something where you've managed to get out of the rat race. So, but back to the Wafati, very fast to build, doesn't require any heat, looks like living in a log cabin, but with a lot more light. Um, and, uh, and when people start talking about, um, why do we go to war and energy conservation and the, the damned CFLs, then it's like, you know what? This trumps all of that. And when they start talking about, like, let's go and, and put a, a $20 million grant and, uh, researching this, whatever craziness thing over here, I kind of think, you know what? If you were to take one million of that and go out and build um, 80 different wafatis, um, you know, with all kinds of uh, scientists with clipboards hanging around, I think you would be a thousand times further ahead. Because, I mean, the thing is, any you know, if you look at what you've done with, with your concept, is you've enhanced and improved Mike Heller's structure. I mean, it's really what you've done and taken work from another person and kind of combined that. And if we actually built 80 of them, I'm sure we would find other new things that we could innovate and improve even further. But, you know, we kind of got to get that off the ground. Now, the, my question to you is, and I think I already know the answer to this, uh, and it's going to be find a place where you can. I, I would have a hard time demolishing my place in Arlington, which is going to be somebody else's problem soon anyway, and building a Wafati here because there would be a whole bunch of people in trucks with little whoopee lights on the top coming by and telling me I can't do it and it's for my own safety and, you know, they, they don't, they, I'm going to damage the value of my neighborhood. So how do you deal with like permitting and things like that? Do you just look for a place where, you know, up in Arkansas, they could care less what I do, you know? Well, yeah, I think, I think that's a big part of it. There's a lot of places where there, there are no permitting issues. Where Mike Ayler is building his structures, there are no permitting issues. Where I'm sitting right now, there are no permitting issues. Um, and then of course, yeah, there's people that have to deal with that. Now, of course, the last time we spoke, um, then uh, I, I, and I think this is where a lot of people were like upvoting, like this is what we have to talk about next, is and maybe I should just tell the story again in case somebody didn't listen the last time, and that is where uh, this fella over in Europe uh, built an Ehler structure on about two acres of land, and um, the government showed up and said, we heard you got a four bedroom house here, and you ain't paying the taxes on it, and we never permitted it, and so we hate you, we're here to make you sad. And, um, and the guy was like working in his garden and he said, 
well, you know, you pointed out to me. And so then the government people went and they wandered all around the property and they never found the house. And then, um, uh, so then he ended up just paying taxes for bare land. And, um, even though he has a four bedroom house there. And now uh, my impression is a lot of your folks, um, uh, really thought that that was, uh, awesome because they want to, uh, go out and build a bug out destination. Absolutely. We have a lot of folks that, and this is, this is kind of what my advice has been so far. If you have a remote location, that's great and it's a good idea to do. You either have kind of a setup like a pad, something there where whatever kind of utilities you have set up are there and invisible and you're doing this with a, a travel trailer or a mobile home, or you have a completely underground invisible structure, which I don't like, but I understand for that purpose it has its place, or you have a trusted neighbor with line of sight view to your property that can keep an eye on it. Because what I can guarantee you is if you have anything else, some two-legged rat or some group of two-legged rats will find what you have, steal what you have, and even if they don't want to steal it, they will destroy it just because they're two-legged rats. And if you were there, you could use a two-legged rat trap, also known as a 306 Springfield, uh, to eliminate them. But since you're not there, that's when they're going to show up. So the thought of having a really true livable structure that maybe even if it isn't 100% invisible doesn't stick out. It's very, very appealing to myself and I'm sure a large number of the community as a whole. Well, the next time I stop by Mike Ayler's place and I go up to look at the original $50 house, uh, and I tried to get video of this before, but it's like here we are walking by the outside of Mike Ayler's house, this $50 house, and it just looks like a hillside. I mean, it was so – you just so couldn't tell it was anything but a trail on a hillside. Although he did have like this black cable running across the ground that was for his solar panels. And, and it's like I, you know, you had to kind of look for it to find it. But I did, I did an awful job with the video. And what I really need to do is to go up there with the idea of like, okay, I'm going to really look for his house. But in, in all reality, as I was videoing it, trying to video the outside of the house, I actually walked by one of the windows and didn't even see it. And, wow. and then I realized, oh, I, you know, because then I got to the, the door where it's kind of like I got this opening in, in the hillside. And that's like, okay, here I am at the door. And he had a whole bunch of junk there. And, um, and so then it's like, okay, now I know I'm here. It's like, oh, that's right. I must have walked by the window. And I didn't <laughs> think to go back and video it because the people, other, everybody else is already inside. So when I take my videos. I'm trying to not be an inconvenience. I, have you ever been to a wedding where they like, um, the cameraman kind of ruins the wedding? Yeah. Yeah. And I, yeah. Or more, more likely, instead of the professional cameraman you've actually hired, the 47 other people with cameras that, that, you know, want their own pictures can really get in the way. So I know what you're saying there. Stand and you've got over a better... there. Stand over there. Okay. <laughs> yeah. now, you know, you're, 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 no, don't make that face. Don't make. You're, you're, you're almost too good at that voice, man. Uh, but you, you've got a better camera now, too. You had a camera that had some, like, fade issues. You Like, you hear the guy talking, like, we're going to put this in here, and then we're going to – so you've kind of upgraded your equipment, too, so that might help. One thing I think would be cool if you could pull it off when you go see Mike again is to video his house from just, say, about 70 yards out and then 50 yards out and then, you know, 30 yards out because I think that – it would help people understand the scale more. Because when you see the front door, like in a video, you don't really get what the whole structure looks like in the landscape. So that, that would be kind of cool. I'll, I'll have to have Mike stand there 
So that, that would be even better. Be a point of reference. Like here I am sitting in front of my door. Hello. Yeah. And then, and then it's like, uh, and then I'll try and get it from all kinds of different angles. So you can kind of see how you really can't see it unless there's a guy standing there waving. So, um, but you know, you gotta go check out the video on YouTube and, and see the $50 house just to see what it's like on the inside. And, and the important thing is, is that the video was made on a bright, sunshiny day in uh, in April, um, but it's in a thick forest. I mean, it's a really thick, thick forest, and the uh, and no one had lived in it for three years, um, and it was and it was taken at a point that the building was 37 years old, uh, and of course the building's still standing, it's still there, um, but the batteries had all run dead on all solar stuff, so there was no light in there other than natural sunlight. And, um, and then it was also all the glass, the majority of the glass was, was north facing. So, um, and it's like, I, I took the video without any additional light. And I think anybody would look at the video and say, there's a lot of light in there. Awesome. And it looks nice. And, and, uh, and, you know, and he's got trees and shrubs growing on the roof and, and, um, well, anyway, and then there's also a video I have of, of what he calls the sleeper, which is something that was 30 years old. And um, when I took the video, there had been a um, uh, a family of three living in it, uh, um, like just before I took the video. Like they moved out just like a month or two before I started taking the video, but they'd been living in there for a year and a half. But this is like this is like a really small thing, and it's not a hidden thing, but but it's definitely an above ground thing. So while the Wafati focuses on being an above ground structure, and it's going to stick out. And we have we have pictures of of things that are above ground structures kind of sticking out on the uh, on the web page. There are um, other other. I mean, I, I think that Ehlers' works are going to definitely be more hidden, more under the underground, that kind of thing. And I think with scale, even with with a Wafati, you could make it very difficult to see anyway. Um, and I think it all does come down to scale. It, it, sure, if I build one in between two other houses, it's it's kind of going to show up a lot more. But you build something on a few acres of land, and like you said, they had a couple of bureaucrats. But I mean, uh, they're probably not the brightest guys in the world. But you would think they could find a house, especially a four bedroom house. So I think there's a lot of potential there. Um, we, we, I've kind of done it again. We're almost into, uh, 90 minutes of, of recording here, uh, which is no problem, but just we, we do need to kind of get things wrapped up. I did want to, uh, you were telling me about a problem you were having, Mike, uh, with a stalker. Oh, jeez, yeah. Uh, I, I've, I've had my own stalkers, so I wanted to hear toward the end ask if, uh, if anybody out there uses a social networking site called Reddit, uh, if you would get in touch with Mike through his Facebook fan page, uh, just let him know that you'd be willing to help. He's got a guy over there that as soon as he posts something to Reddit, uh, starts uh, voting it down with his own account and with a few uh, sock puppet accounts. For those that aren't familiar with the term sock puppet, that just means you set up multiple accounts uh, for one service so that you can log in, log out, and look like you're more than one person. And uh, Mike's posting his videos and stuff on there. And Reddit's a great source of traffic uh, from the social media space and uh so you, you could probably use some help, a couple folks to maybe submit your stuff, vote your stuff up, uh, and get around this uh, ass clown. Uh, that's the only term I have for him uh, <laughs> that seems to have nothing else to do with his time other than stalk you. It, so. it is amazing how his life revolves around my life uh, and and how, uh, boy, if I submit something, it's like uh, it'll get four downvotes or five downvotes like instantly. 
And and uh, it used to be that that he would also post a snarky comment. In fact, I I started to strategize trying to figure out when he was asleep, and so then I I would uh, submit something. <laughs> it would get like three or four upvotes, and, you know, slowly over a couple of hours, and suddenly, yeah. bam, there'd be five downvotes and a snarky comment from him. And and it's kind of like wow this this guy hates my guts, <laughs> so wow. but yeah of all the you probably networks, upset him with your chicken article that's that's, that's probably <laughs> that's, well I've got that's, you're right that's that's the one that really gets most people um but maybe it's the CFL article I've got that too oh that oh there's what you know what that's what it probably is. maybe that's it He's probably devoted his life to changing light bulbs and you've ruined it for him I I, uh, I find it funny but but you know Reddit's my favorite social network site I I really like i go out there and i post and i get all kinds of really awesome comments and then of course you know the whole upvote downvote thing and i'll get like all these upvotes and and uh, it'll it'll go to the top of reddit and it'll be like on the main page and it's like you know boy people really love my stuff and you know it's just a real good ego trip good feeling and then it's like now my stuff can't go there because it's like boy this guy is there all the time so. And that was like my one complaint with sites like Reddit, like Dig, especially Dig used Dig used to be like the social networking site. They were kind of the the social networking 1.0 type consideration that one or two people uh, can have a very negative impact on someone because they have a grudge, not because the content. I mean, the whole concept is great. It's kind of a democratic way of rating content, and if co- people go in there and post crap about Viagra. You know, a couple watchdogs can keep that from getting in the way of all the good content. But the unfortunate side is that people can have an axe to grind. And uh, right. I, I, do, I personally do not understand what a person like that must do for a living <laughs> to have the time to be that on top of things. But, yeah, guys, it's a personal favor to be anybody, especially if you have a Reddit account, you use Reddit. Get in touch with Paul on his Facebook page. Maybe you guys can put together a little Reddit posse, kind of like you guys did for me when I had a problem with that Ask Clown on iTunes, and you, you, you helped me out with that guy. Maybe you guys can help Paul out because he's doing an awesome job, and he's putting out some really great information. I mean, with all the stuff that I talk about every day, and I've been doing for two and a half years, to find a guy that can bring this much new stuff, it is absolutely amazing to me. And, I, you know, Paul, I know you really appreciate the feedback from the community, but I'd like to thank you for what you've brought and kind of infusing some new information. And, you know, I've been able to bring, to go out and find more stuff because you've kind of put me on the track to it. So I appreciate you a great deal, man. Oh, wow. Wow. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the, 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 and, and, uh, and, you know, this has been just a huge thing. When, when you first asked me to, to do this, I had no idea you had so many people. Uh, and the whole <laughs> concept of podcasts, I, I had no idea people – Anyway, it's opened up a whole new world for me, and this has been I, – I go to my uh, – give presentations in Missoula, and it's like a lot of these people, they just aren't ready to hear this kind of stuff uh, that I talk about, and it, and, it, and I sound crazy to them. And and so – but in the meantime, uh, I talk to your people, in fact, the people who came to my presentation last week, and it's like they're eating it up. It's, it's not crazy to them. There's it's It's like – where they want to be, and so uh, your audience seems to be a really great match for for my uh, obnoxious rants. <laughs> <laughs> well, again, I do appreciate you ha- having you on today. I think people probably have a much better understanding of uh, this type of housing, this Wafati housing. And I really like last time you were on, you recommended Mike's book, and I went out and got a copy of it. And I'll tell you, folks. 
I think that it would really help if you really want to build uh, something like this or even plan it for the future. Get a cop of, copy of Mike's book, and uh, it's not really about being underground, uh, as I've learned as I've read the book. And I, you know, I had a, a, an animosity for that word, just as you did, Paul. Uh, but I think if you read that book and look at all of Mike's designs, and then you take uh, Paul's article and add it to that. It all starts to click and make sense a hell of a lot more. Uh, because you get like a found, you know, much more in-depth design concepts, like how do you put the timbers together and things like that from Mike. And then it's like that you also understand the, not just how to do the tweaks that, that Paul's come up with, but why. Because if you understand the full design, you look at it and go, okay, well, there's, there's a potential place for water to be a problem. And then you understand that this extension not only gives you more thermal mass, but it also takes the water the hell away from the house. Which the only time I want water in my house is when I'm making beer, making tea, or taking a bath. Uh, otherwise, I prefer the water stay outside of the house. <laughs> and now, uh, um, if you know Mike Ayler is, is uh, um, he's gotten he's got his own projects going on now, and he's got a lot of stuff that he's doing. But uh, every once in a while, we manage to entice about once a year. We manage to entice him out to permies.com and and visit with us. Um, and, and so, uh, if, if we, uh, I mean, I, I think it'd be great to try and, and, uh, and entice him out again. He's got, you know, entice him away from his other projects to come visit with us about, you know, this kind of eco building again. But, but really, yes, like, get the book, get Ayler's book. That's so important. Um, because really, that's going to go into the nuts and bolts of how to build this structure. And my stuff is really nothing more than some minor enhancements on that. So my article does not go into the nitty gritty of like what kind of wood to use, um, you know, how much to, how much wood, how much wood to use and, and things like that. Although I, I, my article does also explore a little bit of, uh, Sepp Holzer's work, which happens to be almost exactly the same. And yes, and I thought it was pretty interesting, like his animal, animal shelters and stuff that he's built. Um, I also want to make sure, you know, that we're getting wrapped up here, that we, again, remind people of where they can find out more about all your great work. So you have a couple websites and an awesome YouTube channel and a Facebook page. You want to tell people about that? So um, permies.com is where we've got the big forums, and that's where we get a, most of the traffic. My, my YouTube page, please, uh, um, I'd like to ask people to subscribe to me. I'm trying to cut back on all the different places where I announce my stuff. So now, uh, if you subscribe to my YouTube channel, um, then uh, uh, that's going to make it so that you'll get a, you know, you'll find out about a new video of mine. And um, uh, and then I, I'm trying to use Twitter now. I'm trying to, I haven't used Twitter very much, but I'm trying to use Twitter now. And uh, so for anything new, I'm going to use Twitter. And then of course there's Facebook. And then of course the new fan page, the new Facebook fan page. I'm trying to put stuff out there. But I used to go out to 20 different places and say, look, I got a new thing. And that was just, and now it's just taking way too much time to do that. And so I'm trying to focus on just on just a few, but uh, rich soil is where richsoil.com is where I have all of my articles on on different topics. Um, and so uh, yeah, make links to those, you know, all you want. Um, uh, and then you know, I think I think it's a good thing to do. I, I just recently, just this morning, was was writing a, a little bit about how a person can change the world in uh, 60 seconds a day. And, uh, and it really has to do a lot to do with understanding how Google and YouTube work. And it's like when you see, um, uh, a YouTube video that you like, make sure you give it that thumbs up and, um, uh, and make sure you subscribe to the, the person that's writing that. And that's going to really help out that video a lot. 
I'll tell you another thing you can do, folks, is comment. Um, one of the big things with, with, a, with a person like Paul or myself, this is my videos as well, help me out too, um, videos have a tendency to kind of cheat on the search engines a little bit. So for a lot of what we call long term tail, long tail terms, things that are a little bit longer, a little bit more in depth people are looking for, you'll see not just results on Google, but results on Google plus a few videos. And one of the things that Google looks at with a video is not just how many times it's been watched, but how much discussion it has. Because if it's being discussed, that must mean that it's good content. Because they're trying to blend human intelligence with artificial intelligence with their algorithm. That's what they do. So if you look at a video and you really liked it, even if you don't have a big, in-depth, insightful comment, a simple thing like, hey, I really appreciate your video, is going to help the content creator And it's also going to send a message like, we appreciate what you did. Because I don't think people, if you, if you don't regularly put out content on YouTube, you don't understand, it's not shooting the video. It's editing the video. It's uploading the video. It's writing the text to go with the video. Because I can shoot a video in five minutes. And then it takes me an hour to get it up there for you. And I'm sure Paul has to do yeah. the same thing. You've oh, got, yeah. you told me you've got like just tons of video. And it's a matter of getting it on, onto YouTube. So, Little things like that help in more ways than you can imagine. It's not just, it's not just yet yeah, it helps with, with, with uh, the popularity. But boy, it helps the, the content producer go, this is worth doing. You know, yeah. the, you know, 800 people like this and, and like 80 commented on it and like 3,000 watched it. And like, now I feel a lot better than just 3,000 watched it because a view could be, you were there, you looked at it for like five seconds and went, oh, this is crap and left. It still counts as a view. But when you comment on it or you rate it, then we know. Or add so it, please do that for us. Or add it to and everybody Facebook else, page. too. Or add, you add it to your Facebook page. or Yeah, or, that's huge. And those, they track all that stuff. And, and, oh, watch the video all the way to the very end. Yeah. Uh, YouTube monitors that. Um, and, and the other thing is, is all this stuff is worth 20 times more if you do it in the first 24 hours. Absolutely. You know, Absolutely. So, so subscribe. Because yeah. then you'll know that I put new content or Paul. And I, you know what, guys? We want to make sure you understand. We're not just like fishing for us now. All of There's so many great people on YouTube putting out so much great content. And you can spend hours there learning about stuff that you could either pay for or these, these content providers are putting it out there for free. And it really, again, it helps all of us feel like, ah, this is worth doing. You know, there's all that drivel that's on YouTube that, mm. that, that, that gets 100,000 views in the first 24 hours. And Some kid blowing his nut out on a skateboard or something, and you know. Yeah, and, and, <laughs> you know, and the reason is, is because the teeny boppers and the tech heads, all you know, this certain demographic of people, they understand. I mean, so you'll go and you look; it's got a hundred thousand views, and it's got seventy thousand thumbs ups. So yeah. it's like, well, that's why. And and so then I go look at mine, and it's like, okay, I got a thousand views in the first twenty-four hours, and I got fifty thumbs up. And it's kind of like, so I got 5%, he got 70%. And, and Correct. so that's, that's a big part of it. These guys, the teenagers, you know, ooh, Paris Hilton, thumbs up, comment, uh, <laughs> add to favorites, uh, put it on my Facebook page, my Twitter, put it on StumbleUpon, and, uh, you know, vroom, there it goes, you know, YouTube puts it Absolutely. to the top. Um, in the meantime, you know, the guys that are really interested in the survival podcast and permaculture and stuff like that, these guys are interested in that stuff, and they don't have a clue about what the value of this is. And so then they just come and they watch it, and they go, that was neat, and then they walk away. 
And, uh, and really it's like, you know, if you want to be able to have it so that when you go to YouTube and, and you see the content that you like, then you got to do your part. In fact, if you want to change the world, you want to make the world a better place. Every time you see something that makes the world a better place, every time that's a good video, then you need to, to do all, you need to do the five or six or seven steps. Give it a thumbs up. Give it a comment. Add it to your favorites. Um, do the Facebook, Twitter, stumble upon. Uh, watch the video all the way through. Add, uh, subscribe and make them your YouTube friend. Boy, you, you know, uh, for people who make themselves my YouTube friend, I can, I can send them an email once the video is, uh, is up and, and hopefully you'll get it and be able to come and do stuff in the first 24 hours. I'll tell you what, Paul, you're going to need to tune in Tuesday, man, because, uh, all this stuff we're talking about to me is also self-reliance. I'm big on having something of your own uh, rather than just being a wage slave. And uh, Tuesday I'm going to have Gary Vaynerchuk on, and he's going to be digging deep into all this stuff. So, uh, ah. so make sure you tune in with us on that. I, that guy's a little bit hyped up. I referred to him the other day as a puppy on crack. <laughs> and uh, he kind of is, man. I, I'm going to even tell him I said that and see what he thinks. But uh, yeah, you, Paul's right with this stuff, folks. And Paul, I mean, I, I think he goes without saying we're going to be able to get you to come back on again. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I, I'm, I'm thinking that I want to do a bunch and then I want to make my own little web pages. Like, here's all, here's my seven. Uh, episodes of podcast over at the Survival Podcast, and and then uh, we'd appreciate that. Yeah, and so it's links to you. It'll all be hosted by you. That way, I don't have to mess with it. <laughs> but the, here's my podcast collection, and I didn't have to do any work other than make links to it. How neat is that? Well, that that'd be great. And uh, I think next time we have you back on, we'll talk about at least one thing. We'll talk about as the main topic will be what passive irrigation. I think there was a lot of interest in that as well. And uh, I'm presenting give you tonight. I'm, I'm awesome, awesome. So I want to give you one more chance. Any final thoughts here as we wrap up? Um, mostly just uh, lots of gratitude uh, to you and to your listeners, and and how it's um, you know really uh, it's it's putting the wind in my sails to to do this. This is this has been great. Well, awesome, man. Thank you for being here, and thank you for being such a great friend of the community so quickly. Uh, we really appreciate that. And with that, folks, this has been today. Uh, Jack Spirico along with Paul Wheaton helping you figure out how to live about that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. The revolution is you. It's in our food these days. You know it's on our TVs. Sometimes we forget we are what we eat. I don't know the answer. It's like there's nothing I can do It's the price we pay, I guess We follow all the rules There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way
Yeah.